Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Cats Pyjamas Conversations With. This is part of our Communicate Well series where we talk to some amazing communications professionals um, all about health, well-being um, and all things keeping uh, well hopefully. So um, I'm absolutely delighted um, today to have Phil Woodford here with us um, to talk a bit about his story. Um, he's a total inspiration uh, and unsurprisingly people uh, yeah they won't be surprised that we met through the healthcare comms world um, as many of my guests on this podcast have, have come through that route um, but we met some time ago I dread to think how many years now quite a few I reckon um, but welcome Phil do you want to introduce yourself? Thanks Carrie Ann it's very kind of you I'm, I'm never comfortable with the inspirational bit but back at you. <laughs> oh thank you. Absolutely. We're totally awkward aren't we as comms pros? <laughs> yeah no I'm, I'm not great at bigging myself up so do you want me to tell you a little bit about myself yes it's very kind of you to institute okay i'm never sure where to start with this so i'll give you a bit of a snapshot but someone called me a word that i didn't i had to look up the other day is it sequacious i think it means i talk a lot and a load of crap (laughs) and and i apologize in advance for anybody listening that i do swear a lot it's all right we'll put a warning on (laughs) yeah no you probably do need to uh so yeah i'm never sure where to start Uh, i've been with my current employer, University Hospitals Morecambe Bay, for nearly 15 years now. But 20 years, 21 years in total with the NHS. So I'm due a little badge, I think, coming up, a little star badge from the employer. Uh, I joined this trust as a marketing manager. And these were the de- that was the days, going back a bit, when everyone was going for FT status. And in the brave new world of foundation trust, they all thought they want to be a business, so you must have to do marketing if you're going to be a business. So they advertised for marketing managers. So I applied, got the job, but I soon realised they had no idea what to do with me. They didn't know what marketing was. And it it turned out before I could design posters and leaflets. I'm not a designer. I can't design a leaflet to save my life. You know, I can only use publisher. Uh, My background before I joined the trust, I spent about two or three years in higher education and further education in marketing and business roles. And prior to that, a decade with Lancashire Ambulance Services in general management looking after their income, Jen. Uh, and pri- prior to that, it's, it's going back into my 20s, so it's too far to think back, but I, I was mainly in transport. It was a family a family thing in sales and general management roles. And over the years, I've acquired different qualifications. So I've got a, a master's in marketing and various CIM qualifications, and I'm a fellow at the Chartered Institute of Marketing and a member of CIPR. Uh, I'm a chartered marketer, and if I can ever get round to doing my CPD properly, Hopefully I can achieve the CIPR accreditation as well. My special interest in what I do is around behaviour change, uh, particularly what's called the FOG method of of behaviour change around habits. And I've some training in behavioural economics. My current role is I'm a director of corporate affairs, which is about seven jobs on from the marketing manager job. And my portfolio broadly includes the CEO office uh, and support, communications, public affairs, uh, FOI and charity. Uh, my CEO describes me as the 10th man, which is a World War Z zombie movie uh, reference, which is really about uh, my role is to take that opposing view. So when we've got nine members of the board all agreeing that's the way to do something, you tend to find and be uh, the cynical voice, yeah, but what if? And I tend to take that stance, and certainly from a patient perspective, you know, what if we did it this way? How much different could it be for a patient? So that's a little bit about myself, uh, Carrie-Anne. I hope that's 
love well, that. Might not be helpful or interesting, but I there you think go. it's me. I think it's super interesting, and I'm I'm loving you being the 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 what if voice. And I think sometimes our role in communications is to be that constructive challenge, isn't it? And offer I think sometimes so. a different point of view or a different way of doing things. So I'm pleased to hear that you're doing that. But I love that the tenth man, brilliant. <laughs> when, when he introduced me, and it was during a public board meeting, he started to say about the World War Z reference. Uh, I did think it was going down a Brad Pitt role, and then I was slowly disappointed <laughs> it wasn't. I thought, oh, well. this is a great comparator. I've never had this. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's brilliant. Um, so um, I think, yeah, really great snapshot of a, of a very long and prosperous career in uh, marketing and communications, for sure. Um, but the reason that you're on this podcast is because you've kindly offered to share your story um, and well, a particular part of your story. This isn't your whole story about who you are. But um, I have to say, when we met some time ago, I think it was probably a networking event. And I think that's probably the only times we ever meet in, in real life. And I just recall... You know, we'd seen each other at various networks of events, and then I don't think I'd seen you for a while. And then I saw you again, and I was like, "Oh, what's going on here? Like, I haven't seen you for ages." And um, and you told me that you'd had a stroke. So I just wondered if you could share a bit about what that experience was like for you, and kind of how that's impacted you. Yeah, no, absolutely happy to share. It's it's harder than it seems to share. Not not from an emotional point. I've, I've probably largely through that. But there are some radio clips of me crying, trying to recount some of the story uh, live on air. But it, it is difficult. I had two strokes when I was uh, 45. Uh, I know it's hard to believe I'm older than 45, but I am. Uh, so that was about six years ago. And uh, we don't we don't really know why I had strokes. And, and that happens for a lot of us. You know, I'm one in a million. There's a million of us survived in, in this country having had a stroke and, and a large portion. I was just about to shout at the dog then, I can hear barking in the background, sorry. Uh, a large portion of us don't know why we had it, they are largely unknown. In my case, I think it was just a perfect storm. I was stressed out, working long hours. I was on some medication uh, for some other medical conditions which are known to have possible side effects, one of which is a stroke, sadly. So I just think it all came together at a really bad time. But if I had to describe the whole experience in a nutshell, but bluntly, it was really shit. You know, there's no other way. There's no other way of putting it. I made a real stupid mistake of having a stroke at a weekend. It was really selfish of me, which meant that the specialist care I needed wasn't available. You know, it wasn't commissioned for the weekends, and I could go back. That is a whole podcast to talk about, but I don't like trashing or running down my care because it was really very good overall. But thankfully, the care that I wasn't able to have, which was called a thrombectomy, which is the mechanical removal of a of a blood clot, is starting to change. And I'm happy to be part of that locally and trying to influence. So I, I was lucky or fortunate, I'm not sure what the word is, to have my stroke in hospital while under observation for, for a TIA, which, which is unfortunately called a mini stroke. And for those who have had a TIA, there's nothing really mini about it. You know, you've still potentially lost millions of brain cells that are never going to come back. And I always think the mini bit, you know, my plea to people is, you know, don't dismiss it. It's not a funny term. You know, it, it, it could... The biggest indicator of having a stroke is having a TIA. You know, it, it's an indicator possibly of something to come. So I collapsed in the shower in Royal Preston Hospital uh, whilst I was under observation. And I could feel my brain turning on and off, literally, as I stood washing myself. And I'm a typical bloke, I think. I went into hospital, you know, never thought that any, I was going to stay in, never took any washing things with me. So I went for my shower in the morning. I decided I'd just use the hand gel to wash with. 
I'm a bloke. It washes, <laughs> it washes your hands. It must be okay for all the other bits and pieces. So I'm in the shower, and I know people can't see me, but you can. So I was leaning over with my left arm to get the hand gel uh, to wash myself, and then the next minute I felt a bit dizzy, and my left leg went up in the air. You know, it was uh, it was comical, really. I, I just thought I'd slipped on slop soap. Don't know why I thought that semen. I was only using hand gel, but that's what I thought had happened. Down I went in a puddle of water, and probably about 15 minutes I lay on the floor. Uh, and to be crude, I lay there, you know, in my own piss, 15 minutes, thinking I was going to drown. I didn't think it was a stroke. I just thought I'd slipped. And and not to be over dramatic, I honestly remember looking down at my own body, thinking how pathetic I looked, shivering there, thinking I was going to die. I'm a daydreamer, so I always thought I was going to die with a. Uh, you know, a blonde on one arm and a bottle of whiskey on the other, sort of Jack, Jack Belushi style or John <laughs> Belushi. But unfortunately not. It, it was going to be on the floor of a hospital in Preston. And I couldn't shout for help because I didn't know that part of my brain wasn't working. So there was no words coming out. I didn't know why I couldn't sit up. It's because my stomach, apparently there's muscles underneath all the flab. And, and, and I couldn't sit up. And then eventually my snazzy crops, which were in the room, I was able to grab hold of one and bang it across the bin. And then a nurse in the following room heard me, uh, a lady called Beth, and Beth eventually was able to come and rescue me out. Uh, and there was, and it, re- it really was frightening. I was, I was then hoisted unceremoniously, just how it is, and wet and naked on the floor. And so I'm taken through the hospital ward. And it really is bizarre how the brain works because I honestly believed I was taken to a bar, a pub bar, and put on a bed in a bar. And I can remember all the optics behind Beth as she's talking to me now. Oh my goodness! So How I don't strange. Know, I don't know what my brain was doing, but I, I ha- clearly there was no bar there. But I went back to see just to check what it was with my brain, and I, I can't work it out what it must have been. But Beth saved my life. You know, I, I do honestly believe I died that day, and I, I don't feel or think like the old Phil, and that's probably the best way to describe it. So that was that in that moment, if that helps, try to explain what it felt like and what actually happened. Yeah. Uh, how's it impacted me? Uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a uh, trying to think, trying to think of the words. Words, sorry, I forget some words sometimes. But I've suffered with depression most of my life. I've been up and down with it, and I've always felt different. And what what the strokes done is it's complicated it for me. In that my emotions are even more o- over the place, and it isn't unusual for me to cry. So I probably cry every day, and I've cried every day probably for the last six years now since having the stroke. Uh, as an impact, some people will laugh inappropriately after having the stroke, sort of uh, emotional ability, to call it. Uh, some will swear. You know, my stepfather never sweared all his life till he had a stroke. And then every day would, would swear in bad language. You know, I've always just swore, so there's no real difference. <laughs> and, you know, so you've invited on the scouts who swear, swears with brain damage. <laughs> I can't believe you've done it, to be honest, Carrie. My safety radar's also broken. I'm really comfortable with the thought to death now. And, and a, a psychologist I saw said, well, you know, you've been to that point where you think you're going to die. I guess it doesn't really feel that scary anymore. And so I have to I have to manage myself in terms of situations I put myself in, but uh, I, I don't take unnecessary risks. So that's something that, that, uh, that's affected me uh, quite, quite considerably. So it's easy to get down. My biggest regret tends to be a surprise to people. And it's that I can't easily ride a bicycle anymore. Uh, Cycling was my life, that's all I enjoyed. I say it's all I enjoyed doing, it's what I enjoyed doing. My vision of retirement, I'd even bought the bike ready for retirement, you know, although it's still 15 years away. 
I just wanted to go on my bike and ride every day. You know, I once flew right around the world for, for an interview to, to be a cycle courier in Vancouver. You know, for me, if I could, cycling's a movement and a social movement. You know, I spend holidays in Holland just so I can cycle in safety. So now I'm on three wheels on one of those funny looking trikes that are really low down to the floor. Uh, and and I, do, I do that whenever I can, but psychologically I feel disabled, but I look disabled. So it's not, it's not great in my mind, but I feel I look different. And I guess I've got to try and get over that, but it's proven harder than I thought. So the greatest impact on my life, it hasn't been the physically, it's been the mental, it's been the self-confidence has been really shot. shot. You know, am, am I going to lose my job? Am my family going to uh, leave me? How am I going to pay for the mortgage? It, it's all the things you, I guess people would expect, but it, it's been really hard to shift some of those. So I do feel very, very vulnerable. So that, that that's... I won't go into the little medical bits how it's how it's impacted me, but those are pro- I think those are probably the the main parts. Carry on. Oh goodness, how you tell this story, Phil? I'm like partway tears, partway laughing because oh, your sense I'm, of humour is still there, though. It's amazing how I, you just use humour to. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, and I haven't talked about, and I, I, I will do, but I don't talk about the suicide bit much because I, I have tried to take my life once or twice, and. Uh, I'm not particularly proud of the fact. I'm really, if I'm honest, I'm really embarrassed by it. Uh, that I could, that I could even think like that. But I've realised the more I've spoken about it, how many are impacted by it. So I don't, because I joke naturally. You know, every scouser thinks he's a comedian. You know, you don't want to be a comedian and play in Liverpool. It must be awful. You know, we we all think we're experts. So I do make light of most most things. Uh, so I, I try not to on that because I do realise how sensitive it is for people. But it's re- it is really important to hear, you know, it's such a difficult topic, isn't it, suicide? But it is really yeah. important to hear people talk about it because I think that's part of, you know, being able to address that problem and make people realise that it is okay to, to talk about these difficult emotional issues in hope that somehow that might help people who perhaps feel that way about life maybe think slightly differently about it. But I'm um, so no, yeah, absolutely being open about it's like so important and you know, appreciate the level of openness that you're able to bring to the conversation, Phil. Yeah, but I, I don't have any plans to do it. Uh, whenever I talk about it, I get a deluge of emails, usually from therapists. Have you any plans? Are you keeping yourself safe? So I've got a therapist. I've got a safety plan is what they like to call it. And it consists of a number of people I'm going to call when I feel low. And that, that includes people, people I trust, my boss, my wife. It's just it's a different range of range of people. But I won't get into detail too much, but the last time I sort of had those thoughts and I, and I acted upon them. God knows why I took myself to Birmingham to do it. And uh, I do know why, and I'm going to explain. So sorry for people in Birmingham. It's not a place where I want to go to die. It it, it, it was far enough away that my family wouldn't wouldn't see it. Mm. Uh, and the, the way it stopped, it was platform five, if anyone's interested. Uh, I, and it, it's cliched, isn't it? I decided to step in front of the train. And because of my warped sense of humour, as I'm stood there, I'm thinking, I know my luck. I'm going to hit this train. I'm going to bounce off and I'll be in a worse position than I was before. Uh, you, you know, I'll end up with, my legs now just don't work properly. I'll end up with no legs, you know, and still alive. I know my luck. And it, it was it was bizarre. I mean, as I'm stood there in a, in a bit of a zone, a bit of a fog, someone came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and asked me for the time. It was somebody who worked there. I now realise after looking into it and speaking to the Samaritans, that's what they're trained to do. And he obviously realised. And he just broke me out of the trance. 
Amazing. And, and I remember standing there thinking, crikey, what the hell am I doing? And they're teetering on me walking stick. And I'm thinking, you haven't even got the strength to jump in front. How are you actually going to do it? And just him asking me the time brought me back around. I have been back to try and find the person to say thank you. But they did all look at me like I was some strange person, <laughs> uh, you know, coming into the office there. This happened to me. But I, I just wanted to say thanks and let the person know that you know that that mustn't have been easy to go up so when i'm i'm stood now getting a train you know i do look at people i'm not going to go up and there grab anyone who stood near the edge but i, I do do look and think about people and if I, and if i was worried i would go up and just speak to somebody just those few words yeah amazing amazing story so we've got beth who saved your life once and we've yes. got unknown person who works at the train station in birmingham so yeah thank absolute you. heroes a thank you to those two because without them i wouldn't be here talking to you today so thank oh, you you too karen carry on <laughs> Um, you've, you've talked a little bit about your boss and you've talked about sort of work and your worries around, you know, how would this impact your work? Would you still have a job? Would you be able to pay your mortgage? So what, what has the impact been for you from a work point of view and kind of how have you been supported? Yeah, su- support at work in the early days, I would say, was very difficult. And uh, I struggled that it was difficult because I work... I, if it's not bad enough that I had a stroke, I ended up being treated in the hospital with my colleagues, which was a personal mm-hmm. choice. I had myself transferred to where I work. I honestly believe, you know, don't tell other people that it's a good place to get care but not be cared there yourself. But I walked down the corridor with more people who've seen me naked and wiped me back, back, backside than anybody else. So it, 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 it's, it's affected it me in that. Things. It changes things. Oh, it does. <laughs> I, did a, I did a conference once about stroke and it, you know, a lot of people from work came and I was, you know, show of hands if you've seen me naked, you know, half the auditorium. Leave your hand up if you've wiped my backside. <laughs> you know, that's how, that's how it feels. And I really felt for the staff, if anything. So how, so in the early days coming back to work, sorry I digress on that. I always find it quite funny. Is that uh, it, it was difficult because people focused on the physical aspect. And in terms of making changes for people in the workplace, and I have to say this glibly because it is what it is, it's just money. You know, you can change the shape of doors. You can get new desks that go up and down, easier access. It's dead easy to do. You know, there shouldn't, there shouldn't be anything that stops us doing it in the NHS. Just make the changes. Who cares whether it's reasonable or not? If it makes it comfortable, just do it. The bit which people struggled with is, is why would I sit there all day crying? Uh, and I didn't want to. I just, But you know when you cry, it makes you sad and you get depressed. And that's what it would do every day. And I'm, I'm really lucky, you know, the PA I worked with at the time, Cara, attended some therapy sessions with me, which my therapist suggested so she could learn more about me and how she could help me. So that made a huge difference was my PA actually understanding and helping me with my diary, making sure I had those rest periods. Uh, the fatigue was probably the, a big difficult when I came back to work. Um, I am impatient, so, you know, I was back to work within six or seven months, mainly because the money ran out. And uh, there, there is a fact of life, you know, people can be cynical about uh, things they can't see. Well, when you go to half pay, people come back. I did because it was, I didn't know I was going to pay the mortgage. So pain or not, and the fact I had no driving license anymore, I was coming back to work. Work were helpful in that they paid for a taxi for me uh, to get me to work and back. Uh, so that, that was really helpful. And access to work, which you've probably heard of, which is the government scheme where if you have a disability, physical or mental, 
and you need help with reasonable adjustments, you can apply to it and they, they have specialists who will come and assess your workplace. So they assessed my home as well and made sure that everything I had at work, I had a duplicate at home. So the fancy electric desk that goes up and down, that's at home. The chair I'm sat in now, a thousand pounds, that's provided for by the government. My Bluetooth headset. So they did everything they could. Uh, the, phys- the physical, it was probably like the lack of understanding. And my plea to people, and uh, I had a great experience a couple of years ago, is that, you know, if you have people with a brain injury, colleagues, or, you know, if they've had a stroke, it's please get involved in their rehab. You know, it'll help you understand what they physically can and can't do. I, I stand up in the middle of meetings and disappear. I don't need to explain to my colleagues anymore. I'm going to wet myself if I don't go. I don't have con- full control over my bladder muscles. I'm not embarrassed by it. If It is what it is. It, it, it's just, you know, so they, un- they, they understand, but not having to explain that. In the early days, people did make jokes. Oh, can you not hold your water? And I am a bit blunt. No, I can't. I'm going to piss myself if I don't get up and go. You know, and, and I have thought once or twice, I'll just embarrass you and do it. But you know, it's, it's not fair on people. I don't. Well, maybe it is. So, so it, it, that's quite difficult. So the adjustments are probably more other people than me. You know, people found it odd that I might record a meeting because I can't always remember what's happened. Too much information is overload. So lots of reports. I used to be OK. CQC report coming out. Great. I can read that. I can read the evidence. I can't. I've got to do it really slowly. Uh, I never understood how uh, much your brain works and how much energy it needs. Uh, so I'm constantly tired, constantly fatigued. I'm currently looking to buy a chair, come lounge for myself for the office at work so I can take a nap and rest during my day. I've got to be careful about my working hours. Occasionally I'll stop on my way home for a rest and a coffee. I work in the Lake District, which is beautiful, but I live 40 miles away nearer to Preston, if you know the area in the northwest of England. Uh, so it, it it's not a straightforward commute. You know, there's a lot of little windy roads, there's a lot of motorway. So I've got my spots where I know now don't push it. I'll go there, I'll take a rest, I'll have a coffee and put my feet up. And in, and in the first year or so back from when I was starting to drive again, I would just sleep on the way home. So it, it's those sorts of things were really quite difficult. So it's impacted, it's impacted my work. It meant I'm, I'm slower. Things are a bit more difficult. As a person, my personality's changed. Uh, I always thought I was open before, but I've become even more open as a person. I could, je- I, won't, I won't embarrass you to do it, but I generally could sit here naked and be okay. And I don't know how, I, I said that at a conference when I did a presentation. You now I called everyone's bluff that I could do the presentation naked. I don't have some uh, muscle body underneath that I'm dying to show off. That inhibition just seems to have disappeared. Yeah. So something's changed in, in the brain with that. So yeah, so I'm a, I'm a different person. I can be quite angry at times. Uh, and that, that's hard to cope with because it, it hurts inside. You know, those physiology changes that take place when you're stressed or you've got anger. I can feel it building up and the heat coming up in my body. And, and so that's quite hard to keep low. I don't I don't know why it is, uh, but it, it's a noticeable change in me. Hmm. So there you go. That's how it's impacted me. So I guess those changes in, um, like you're saying, almost like your personality, that you feel like a different person. That's probably one of the reasons why it's so important that the people around you are part of your rehab and part of understanding what's different for you because I guess that would be quite a surprise for somebody if you know that your your nature is different to how it was before so 
I think that's that's really interesting because you talked a lot about the physical stuff that people can do to support you but actually it is that emotional support isn't it and understanding what's different for you so that people may be less surprised or less shocked if you react to something differently to how you might have done before yes yeah it's, it's a good way of putting it yeah um, thank you so much for being so open and for um, for sharing that. No, more than happy um, to be. I guess there was a question from me because obviously we're communicators by background, and I just wondered mm-hmm. if you've been able to use your communication skills and experience to raise awareness, I guess, of strokes and how they have an impact on people. Yeah, I have. I've, I've I've used it as much as I can in areas. So I've delivered a number of talks now. Uh, probably the notable one is the Occupational Health Conference in Birmingham. Uh, and, and that for me was a bit of a milestone because I decided to take it a bit more serious, telling my story. And I, I'd explained what I just did about, said a moment or two ago about how employers could get involved and what the difference that could look like. And at the end of a talk, uh, a physiotherapist uh, and social worker uh, came up to me, which was quite a mixed combination and said she'd listen to what I said and she was going to go back and look at changing her practice. And I, I was absolutely blown away because she was saying I could see the difference actually now if I'd done that with some of the patients I'm looking after, they, they would have had an easier transition back to work. Yeah. I fall into that bracket, which I don't think I do anymore, at 50, nearly 51, which is a younger survivor. You know, there's still a myth uh, that, you know, strokes is an old person's condition. Mm-hmm. It, it's not, unfortunately, you know, we'll say fortunately strokes are doing that. So it's coming, it's, they're coming down, but actually in terms of a younger age group, you know, it's doing that. We've, we've got a relatively sedentary lifestyle. People of my age have, you know, we've grown up with the junk food era. You know, we've, we've got a, a base of not being the particularly healthiest of group of people. So there, there is a rise in a younger-ish uh, strokes, what would have been middle age at one point, I guess. So yeah, I've done, I've done quite a number of talks. I've made a short film and I declare it's paid for with a pharmaceutical company, which was about uh, animals and how my dog helped me recover. Uh, and in fact, Carrie, so you can understand my mental state, my dog's with me now. Oh, what's your dog called? Well, he died three years ago, Carrie. Oh, so really? He, he did. I see him every day. Oh, that's lovely. He's supporting you. Yeah, and if you, if you have a dog, you'll know that, that they talk. You know, so he, he constantly talks to me. And, you know, when we talk around uh, people adjusting to how you are, people really struggle with that around me. You know, I've even bought the dog bowl to work for him. Oh. And I, I know he's dead. I, I, I accept that. But I, I get a load of cut. I don't particularly want it to change. You know, my therapist is talking to me about grieving. and I don't particularly want him to go anywhere. I have a new puppy as well. I'm, I'm really quite happy when I turn to my left, he's laying down here looking at me for, you know, in his voice going, Dad, you know, you're crazy, what are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm really quite happy that he gives me advice about work, uh, which probably answers a lot, really. So he's part he's part of your coping mechanism? He is, very much, yeah. very much, yeah. Has he got a particular voice that he talks to you in? That's my question. He has, but bizarrely, it's the same voice as my other two dogs. <laughs> so they need to find their own voice. They do, they do. And has he got a Scouse accent? Uh, not really. Not really. No. It's funny because other Scousers will say, I haven't got one. <laughs> You're not a proper Scouser now. No, plastic Scouser <laughs> did call me. Um, so uh, 
we talked a bit about kind of raising awareness and obviously hopefully we're doing that through this podcast as well and you've just mentioned your dog but has anyone else inspired you or helped you through your journey yeah it's too long a list but uh there's a number of sort of people that have that inspire me uh so and i'll as you've asked i'll lead through what so one person it's not somebody i know personally but in terms of uh a celebrity type person their story that's inspired me is a man called David Goggins which is an American Navy SEAL and and reading about his stories and overcoming battles in his life I've got to be honest pushed me on in hospital as to what I could achieve and then a lady I met as I came out of hospital as a Paralympian called Sophie Warner and and so Sophie's established something called the superhero tri-series for the disabled which is a sport and event and other than COVID, I've taken part in each year now since uh, the stroke, which is, we well, you know what a triathlon is. So it's the cycling, running and swimming. Uh, and I shouldn't joke about this, but I'm, I'm going to. And then hopefully people take it in the spirit it's meant. You know, the last race I entered, you know, I got beaten, beat by a woman with no legs in a cycling race. You know, it's fantastic. There's blind cyclists. There's, there's, uh, there's, there's children who are uh, terminal. You know, and, and to be at the last event and see this young child and the family were crying, telling me, you know, she crossed the line running. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. You know, you know try, trying to get my head around. Well, you knew she could run across the line. I said, no, she's never ran in her life. She, you know, she can't walk without a walking frame. But being here today, she's found the energy somewhere to get across the line. And I was in, I was in bits. You know, there's, there's famous celebrities from the disabled world like David Weir who take part in it. But it's just a level in play, level playing field. You know, there's people with no arms taking place, taking part in the swimming. I, I can't, I can't swim. My wife swims for me in it. So, so that she's been a huge inspiration as what you, what you can achieve, and just you know focusing on that ability rather than disability. Uh, closer to home, people who I think the NHS is really blessed with some fantastic comms professionals. So I'm inspired in my work by quite a number of people is yourself, and I'm not just saying it because I'm here, and I mean that genuinely, I think it's fantastic what you do. I've mentioned already prior to this that people haven't heard was Kate Jarman. You know, her work with Flex the NHS, I find inspirational, and, and the way she speaks out on certain issues. Claire Riley at Northumberland, and then uh, Anthony Tierney at London Ambulance. You know, all beautiful and good people, and I'm, I'm fascinated by people. I, I, I love and hate people equally, if, if that's the right way of describing it. <laughs> I, I could sit in a cafe watching people all day, you know, and that probably is what I'll do in my time, growing fatter doing that. But probably the biggest inspiration in my, in my life is my wife. Uh, and if she was here, she'd be slapping me across the head saying, stop trying to embarrass her. <laughs> uh, her name's Shana. She's more than my wife. She's a she's a person. But she inspires me because the, the trait, you know, the only training she had for me having a stroke was saying I'd do it at the altar. We hadn't even done that at that point. Uh, uh, but, but she stuck by me through it all. And I've said that to some people, and they said, well, wouldn't she? And I said, well, we, we say that in sickness and health, but actually, when when the uh, push comes to shove, will you? You know, will you help them on the toilet, you know, when they can't get out of bed? It, it's not it's not easy. So she's really inspired me because she's done that. She, we've, we've got two kids, we've two dogs, she's got a job, you know, looked after me and kept all of that going. I, I honestly don't know if I could have done it to the same level myself. I hope I could. Yeah. You had you had somebody on that really. It was Rachel Royal, you know. And there's another selfless person. And she was talking about being a living donor, and it and it is. It's just it's just inspirational. So I know people do it out of love, 
but it's still easier said than done. So my wife really does inspire me. And then after that, it'd be my mum. Oh, I'm feeling so emotional talking to you, Phil. It's like a roller coaster of emotions, this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's really important to hear, you know, all all parts of your story, the difficult bits and the bits that are more positive and who inspires you. It's just brilliant. Thank you. Um, And so I just wanted to sort of finish, although I could talk to you all day, honestly, but I know you've got other things that you probably need to get on and do. But um, I know that there's a book coming and I'm quite excited about it and I can't wait to buy my copy. So uh, are you able to tell us a little bit about the book without it being a total spoiler? Yeah, and I'll give it, I'll give a spoiler as well to the heading as well. <laughs> uh, so I'll gladly tell you about it. it. It's a walk through my life. It's a collection of sort, stories and anecdotes. It started out as a bit of a cathartic exercise. I attended the uh, Nybevan NHS Leadership Programme and they have they have part of that which is about understanding yourself and your own life story about, you know, it's that existential question, why am I here? What's it about? And uh, that part of the programme really resonated with me and it, it got me thinking, who am I? You know, who do I want to be? I put it bluntly, I don't buy into some of the leadership bullshit which I read. I just think, you know, you just treat people nicely. It'll be okay. You know, let's not complicate this with traits and I've got to be like that person. I, I just want to be like me. And for me, that's being authentic. If people don't like me, do you know what? You don't like me. We'll, we'll get over it. Let's just get the job done. So that's where it came from. And I wanted to just explore what type of personal leader do I want to be? So it wasn't about making any money. There's no way I'm going to make any money on it but based on what I've spent to get it proofread and, and <laughs> a cover design. It, but if I do make a penny, you know, on it, then you no know, profit, then I'll, I'll give it all to charity. You know, this isn't this isn't a uh, some sort of trying to get rich. I've got some ideas of grandeur above my station. So the book has the strange title of From Prostitutes to Prime Ministers, uh, which is very my browse with my MP colleagues. It's been quite fun. I'm not outing any prime ministers. Uh, so for me to be pardon me, authentic. It's about uh, exposing myself and my own vulnerabilities. So I've had some encounters, uh, and I will give a bit of a spoiler away and explain the title, with sex workers and a few heads of state. And then there's a life in between that. And so it's been an interesting 50 years, and I wanted to leave something behind for my kids and hopefully my grandkids. It said something about me and my values. And I, I make mistakes every day, but I like to think I get some things right. And so the title, part of it is about, and I'll share this, it's a little embarrassing, but it is what it is. I was about 21 and my job, I was a long distance delivery driver uh, going around the country and you got money to stop out, uh, which you meant to go and get a B&B, but you don't, you pocket it, you sleep in the van. You're 21, you just want the beer money. And so that's what I'd do. Now this this bit, I don't know why I'm telling you this because it's not in the book. I used to deliver coffins and I generally would sleep in the... Someone has to. That's true. That's true. Someone has to. You've done it, Phil. Amazing. I delivered coffins, uh, but they're not comfortable because I've slept in one or two of them. So I'd, I'd, I'd sleep in the back of the van, bear me sleeping bag and my little television, and uh, and that's what I'd do. And one one night I was in pool outside of Dorset, long way from home, three four hundred miles away. This isn't untypical. There was a knock on the door, the side door of the van, and it was a prostitute. It, it was usually either a woman or another driver uh, looking for something through the night. I've always just smiled and closed the door. I, I was horrified, this, this, this girl, it wasn't a lady, 
I would say she was 13 or 14 at most. And it, and it was clear what she was there for. Uh, I, I, t- I turned her down, but I paid her to spend the night with me on the condition we didn't have sex. And I, and I took her off the street for the night and I was quite happy with that. We, she stayed in the van, we had a beer, we watched telly and we laughed. And to this day, I don't know what happened to her. And, and it's a great regret. I don't know what happened to her, but I really hope she didn't get abused for one more night. So, that, it, so it's sharing a bit about me. So it's a bit of pl- it's a bit of clickbait, I guess. What, what's he on about prostitutes? Let's fa- let's find out. And the prime minister is, is just me joking around. I've met some heads of state, and what was that experience like? I've met Theresa May. I've been to number ten. Uh, I never thought I'd get to go. I'm one of probably millions of people who've been, but for me, it was a big it was a big deal meeting the prime minister. Don't think she liked my Tony Blair jokes, but uh, <laughs> I was a. Uh, I was telling her how impressed I was to be stood next to Tony Blair picture. So I declare some of my... He was always somebody as a communicator uh, I looked up to. I, I probably don't as much anymore. Not, not since uh, some of the things. I won't get into that. So the book shares everything from how I, I've planned to take my own life, uh, experience of being bullied at work, uh, what I learned dealing with a number of high-profile communication crises, and being abused by a father who also killed my dog when I was at school one day. And then it, it, it brings it to current day in four months as an inpatient, uh, being in a wheelchair for four months, being able to walk or wipe my own bum. Uh, some dark humour, some scouse sarcasm, uh, some just honesty, and I'll wait and see. I'm very nervous, as despite saying I could sit here naked, it's quite uncomfortable at times to bear all. And uh, I'm more worried about, and I've, I've spoken to them all, but members of my family, I'm clearly very open about father and my feelings I have towards him which aren't which aren't great but I do have respect for other members of my family who don't feel that way they went through the same thing but they've dealt with it better than I have I haven't dealt with it particularly particularly well uh so so that that's my nervousness certainly around my younger sister uh who adored my dad and uh I didn't so there we are Carrie that's the book Blimey, and hopefully that will be out soon for us I, to. Yeah, I keep saying to people next month, and it, it, it's just a delay in the proofing, and uh, and getting that uploaded and in the right format. Uh, hopefully, it'll be on uh, websites Barnes and Noble, and also on Amazon, uh, digital and uh, in a a physical format as well. Excellent. So, if this podcast has been a little taster for people and they've uh, liked what they've heard and been inspired and intrigued by your story, then they should definitely buy the book when it's out. That's going to be what I'm going to tell people. Oh, that's very kind. Find out more when the book is out. So, um, I think all that leaves me to say is thank you honestly so much for being so open with your story, for sharing um, all of it, the ups, the downs. Um, It's been Yes, really. I know you. this will make you awkward, but it has been really inspirational to hear from you. And I know people will appreciate your honesty. Um, so you've been nothing but your authentic self on this podcast. Thanks, Carrie. And I'm it's lovely to see you again. It's been really great to speak. If people do want to connect with you um, after they've heard this podcast, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, two ways. Uh, you can website phil, philwoodford.co.uk. I'm not the copywriter on Twitter. That's, that's somebody else. If you do contact me, we'll tell you, oh, you need that fat scouser up north. <laughs> uh, so on Twitter, I'm Phil underscore Woodford. And I'm, I'm happy for people to contact me either way. Brilliant. 
thank you so much Phil for sharing your story it's been an absolute um, delight listening to you and I'm going to go and grab a tissue now I think and wipe my eyes apart from laughter apart from uh, emotion so thank you so much for sharing Phil and um, I really appreciate it don't forget if you want that naked podcast just give us a shout I will do well somebody might who knows (laughs) who knows what offers are going to flood in now I'm interested now (laughs) I only wish you hadn't said something (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Phil.